0: What are you doing in Boulder?
1: What brings you Uh I came to Boulder this time to delight in the music of Zakir Singh mm. and his brothers and his Masters of Percussion band, which was performed last night. Yeah. And, you know, I regard them as real masters of life in many ways, um, masters of art in the highest. So I really truly believe that when you're even in the presence of a master, that it transforms your soul, mm-hmm. even just to hear them, to, mm-hmm. to see them. Um, so as much as I could be around them, you know, just for the, for the night, I got to be there for the sound check and to and delight in their performance and then afterward, you know, just to be in their presence. Yeah. And it's, it's remarkable to to be in in the presence of being uh, embodied being that um, is really pushing the envelope of evolution. Huh. So I feel shifted. It's a I totally it was a blessing, and I got to share with my lady. Yeah, last night was
0: my second experience with Zakir Hussein mm-hmm. and it, he talked about that. You know, this performance will be the only time they'll do that performance. It's different every time, and it really seemed very similar to the best of what jazz was and maybe is, um, you know, that spontaneous quality. And I wonder if that's sort of where the power comes from, that it's not a rehearse.
1: Well, I think, you know, what he was doing is, he was actually just stating a truth that is often overlooked for really every event of every day is totally fresh and new. But we often think, well, we're going to a concert, we're gonna see, I've seen masters of percussion before, even if they were the same performers, The mind tries to uh, find what has been the same. That's one way we kind of get a grip on reality, you know. But he was just stating something that he knows very well that most people don't really bring into their forefront of their awareness, is that this moment is precious. This moment is unique. And it doesn't matter if you perform the same song. If You know, like in classical music. My mother played classical music. uh, She was a pianist. And you'd play the composition, the notes on the page that haven't changed in 200, 300 years, and yet it can be every performance of the same notes is unique. So Depending on your mood or your... Exactly, you know, and that uh, spirit is always bubbling up afresh. And it's in moment to moment that it's it's evolving. I mean, consciousness, time, everything is just this ever-changing dance so even if you're trying to do the same thing you know you go through the so-called same mundane routine it's changing you know and there's you know there's a presence of consciousness that one could uh state that maybe is unchanging you know and, and observing one from you know when you're as soon as you can remember when you're a kid all the way through you know you're growing up and moment to moment and yet um even that presence gains skill in being able to witness yeah. the ever-changing mm-hmm. dance and, and really being able to even del- uh, learn how to delight in it more. So you watch these guys, the pros, like the masters of percussion, and you watch how childlike they really are. And they've been oh, doing yeah. it. You know, Zakir has been doing it for, I don't even know what, 40-something years? Um, <laughs> he and, looks like he's 40. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. You know, he looks younger frankly than his brothers his younger brothers but part of it is his spirit is so youthful and he's finding constant astonishment and wonder in it like it's a kid with his drum but he's getting better and i talked to his uh his brother the other tuple player and he stated that that now he's actually performing better than ever in his life so it is after even all those decades of practice it's it's evolving, but their their experience of the delight is evolving. But I, I love that comment that like, you know, this is a new con this is brand new. But it's it's he was just stating the obvious.
0: Right. right. Yeah, it was really delightful. I mean how they would go. They, each person would play for you know quicker and quicker and you know secure. It's like turning side to oh, yeah. side and just having a great time.
1: He, you know, a lot of it he, he just does it spontaneously. He's sort of conducting They'll, they'll give a general format about, you know, you go first, you go second, we'll play this song, we'll do this thing. And yet in that, it's fresh. And that every member of the band, knowing that is in, in effect the conductor, has to be completely open that he's going to be totally spontaneous. And much of their communication is just through the eyes or small signals with their facial expression or hand signals. And they have to listen and in, in attune to subtleties and the nuance of the playing to be able to, to be so fresh and spontaneous, to, to get into a, such a synchronization that it, when Zakir moves, they move with him. So they actually are learning, they're like the students in a way, following the master as a conductor. And I, I just love to see it because in one, one three-hour concert, one evening, the entire essence of the man's teachings are really evident if you really, you, you unpack it through your awareness and your analysis, you know.
0: Yeah, I sat down because I'm not a very, um, I'm actually not very um, sort of you know, a very interesting person. I'm not usually very interested in world music or whatever. I like to lie around and sort of kind of zone out at the end of an intense day. And uh, the first ten minutes, I was like, "Oh, here we go," Zakir Hussain, world music kind of stuff. And then they just started. It was amazing. It was like the time of my life. You know, it was, it yeah. was so amazing. Mm-hmm. I think, and that comes from them being really you know, in the moment, right having to be the way they played.
1: Yeah, so. and for me too, I, I'm, I am somewhat knowledgeable on a lot of classical Indian mm. instruments. Yeah, you uh, play a bit. A li- well, I don't play Indian, I play western yeah. drums. Oh, yeah. But I understand, you know, I understand a little bit about mm. composition, Indian composition, music composition, which yeah. is incredibly intricate. Uh, like the sitar player last night, you know, I, I started listening to Ravi Shankar, you know, in the 60s, you know, right? You know, and uh, he was at Woodstock and so on, and, that, and then the whole Beatles uh, yeah. bringing out that kind of in, Indian uh, you know, music with yeah. the sitar. And the guy that like, last, we saw last night, you know, there's like a whole level of generation. So we're talking in the last 35 years, the development of music that has been around for hundreds of years is at such an advanced level. And it's, it, it blows the mind um, how advanced these guys have become. So I was completely, I'm, I'm shifted yeah. in my soul today.
0: Yeah, And you're then teaching, I understand, in about an hour, right? Yes. And then in Denver.
1: Yeah, it's just a local thing today. We practice with the teachers. So we, we have little satsang, oh, nice. wow. you know? What and, does that mean? Uh, it just means that we have a gathering mm-hmm. uh, by invitation of my top students in the area. Mm. So yeah, I didn't get
0: the invite. It must have
1: yeah. I missed it. Well, you're welcome to yeah, come watch. No, I'm just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you are Whalen, really. But got uh, as much as I could do. Yeah, but we do have. There are certain, you know, sort of implicit levels of studentship, mm-hmm. and these particular students that are coming for the for the gathering for this practice are at a very high level. Cindy and Jeannie. Yeah. yeah, and they're really the top. They're the top teachers in the state.
0: Um, so maybe to begin at the beginning. Yes. Um, I mean, there's different beginnings we can start at, but you grew up in Texas.
1: I grew up, I was born in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then I moved uh, when I was six to Ohio, and I mm-hmm. did my schooling, my undergraduate uh, schooling, my high school um, through, through, I was 18, and then mm-hmm. moved from Youngstown, Ohio to Cincinnati, and I was there for a year, huh. and then moved to Texas, and that was in '78. Okay. So I've been in Texas. My home's been in Texas since. Okay.
0: Yeah. So you're not really a Texan, though.
1: Well, I you know, so I was the, really excited is, about the Texas. Yeah. Well, I'm once, a, yeah, it's true. You know, I mean, once you're if you're there for that long, and I graduated from Texas A and M. Okay. So yeah. They, then there, they, you know, I'm an honorary Texan for sure. Right.
0: I went to high school in Vermont, and a guy had. He was like third generation, and the neighbors hadn't accepted him. They were like, oh, yeah, you moved in. We remember, you know, like 1940 or something. Your family came here. Yeah. yeah.
1: Anyway.
0: So, um, and how did you, and I understand you were a financial analyst. Was that your
1: career? Yeah, my my sort of big professional career was in finance and accounting.
0: Mm -hmm. And somehow you found uh, being a yoga star and... Touring the world was more interesting. <laughs>
1: well, that was never really an idea. You know. It was in the, in, this, in the 80s. I started to teach in 1980, and it was part-time until 87.
0: How did you first encounter yoga as a student?
1: Well, my mother introduced me to the whole topic of yoga when I was just a boy. So I started to hear the stories about the yogis when I was about eight, these truly supernaturally gifted yogis from the Himalayan mountains, you know. So they just sounded like they were superheroes. And as an eight-year-old boy, it was like Batman and Flash and Superman all put together. So I just, I thought, this is amazing. I wanted to be a guy that could dematerialize and go all over the place and, and really know the secrets of life. So I was just intrigued and... That started me off with just inquiring more about what is yoga and how could I be a yogi? Uh And And this is when you were how old? Eight years old. Wow.
0: And so what did you do? Did you read books?
1: Yeah, and then, well, at the time, you know, I couldn't read, so my mom Uh read to me. Uh So she, you know, Mom, I want to read this, and I want this, I want to learn about this. So she would read me the stories, and when I could start to read, she bought me the yoga books. There were Hatha Yoga books and some philosophy books. So when I was about thirteen, I, I started to read the Bhagavad Gita. These are Indian scriptures, the sure. Upanishads. Um, I looked at some. They're
0: legends. They're pretty accessible or interesting for a
1: child. Oh yeah, I mean you know they're they they depict almost in this multicolored realm of literature um, a whole other culture that has so much pageantry, you know, the, a battlefield with uh, chariots, and um, here you have a guy that the charioteer is blue, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> so um, yeah. blue skin or dark skin, and uh, just the stories, you know, like if you've read the Bhagavad Gita in chapter 11, Krishna- I read it in college, okay. I don't really. Well, he, in, one, in one part of the, in the dialogue between Arjuna Who's the warrior and his charioteer? Who is Krishna? Uh, the is effectively God. You know, um, but he this, doesn't know. He doesn't really no. know. And he goes, "Well, dude, let me let me just show you." In chapter eleven, he, he shows his uni- universal form. He's like, "Look in here," and he opens his mouth, and he's got the entire universe in there. Wow. It kind of makes Arjuna lose his yeah. uh, bodily functions. Wow. And um, that was really that was really exciting for you know thirteen year old. Right. No, I just love that blue the people chariots. showing the whole universe in the mouth and <laughs> that's cool. Knowing all the knowing the entire knowledge and wisdom of the of the universe. Hmm. In this little book. Right. Eighteen chapters. I read it hmm. in one day, man. I had it down. Wow. But I, I, I still remember the day I got it, the hmm. book, and still remember the day I just read the whole thing through. Do you have that book? Yes. Wow. I still have that book. It was a one Mascaro translation. Hmm. So he was a I think a South American translator, scholar. He's translated many things, but he wrote it in kind of formal poetic language. But there was so much love, so much devotion that came through the verses that I was really moved. And that was one thing that I knew right away that a style of yoga and philosophy that moved my heart, that was passionate, that was devotional, that had love in the forefront. And I, as growing up in a Christian home, I also had... I was moved when there was discussion and practice about devotion. Like, you know, to say... I remember even writing on a T-shirt when I was just a boy, like, I love God. You know, really radical. And that was... In the Christian church where I lived in Ohio, that was almost blasphemous. You just wouldn't... It was almost too much, you know, like, what are you doing? But I just... I was that passionate. So when I read the Gita... And there was so much devotion and love for God. I thought this is it. This is really this really hit hit home.
0: So and um, and then when did you start taking yoga classes?
1: Um, shortly thereafter, there was a class in the neighborhood. When was, you were around thirteen. Yeah, and uh, uh, there was a lady that did that out of her house. Mm-hmm. She was a member of the Theosophical Society. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember yeah. that, but so she was kind of a. At the time, you know, the really super new-agey person. She was like the new-agey person in the whole town. So she had, like, the cat, and she drank the tea, and had her tarot cards, and I'll had the dad. crystals. Yeah. Madam. yeah, madam, you know, yeah. and uh, she was sensitive, but she was dabbling in all these things, theosophy and yoga. So I would go to these, her little class, and I was the only guy, and of course the only kid, so I was kind of like the mascot because I was kind of yeah. into it and serious. I just couldn't believe that a, a young boy was into the subject.
0: Theosophy or the Theosophical Society, they sort of brought up Krishna, Murti, and Murti, and they sort of invited a lot of the first Buddhist teachers. And they were kind of Bohemians in New York. Was, I don't remember there were two of them, Madame something. Or yeah,
1: Blavatsky. Yeah. yeah, that was uh, yeah, 1875 actually. Yeah. Then uh eight, 1925 uh, Annie Besant was the one and oh, yeah. uh, Bishop Ledbetter from England they oh, yeah. found Krishnamurti oh, yeah. on a beach in India because yeah. Ledbetter was a guy, he was a clairvoyant so he saw this kid's aura oh. that he thought this this kid is yeah. like some avatar you know yeah. so he went up to him and they said you're the chosen one you know you're you're the new um, you're the new major guru and they brought him in and brought him to America yeah. And he kind of rebelled after he got right. kind of settled in here right. in California.
0: Yeah, I read it for a review for the magazine. I read his, I think it was his autobiography or biography mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago, but I don't really remember anything.
1: Yeah, but it was really, it was it, did, it was a very influential movement, both in in Europe and the UK and here in America at the turn of the century, 20th century.
0: And then you became, a, at some point, a pretty serious student of Iyengar.
1: Yeah, in my... Yoga pursuits through the years, and then when I started to, I'd been teaching for about six years, and I just it was just an amalgam of different styles, very eclectic hatha yoga. I went out to California to study, and I happened to go to the Iyengar Institute in San Francisco, which at the time was, it might still be kind of regarded as one of the, the top Iyengar centers in North America. And I went, my first class, I jumped into the advanced slash teacher's class. It was one class a week that was the top level. Now, you know, I thought I'd been doing yoga since I was a boy and had been teaching for six years. And so that was the appropriate level, right. you know, this total ego. Right. And I went in and got my ego just dissolved yeah. in that one class and recognized that I didn't know, I thought I knew yoga, and there was this whole other world. The detail, the specificity, the refinement, all of it—I was astounded. And I remember humbly coming to the teacher after the class and saying, "I understand you're teaching a level one, a beginner level. The next class in about thirty minutes, can I just stay?" Wow! And I just—and wow, she said, great. "Yeah." So I just went from the highest level to the most beginning level in the same day. And
0: that's cool. You didn't like go home depressed and take it like.
1: I was really I, yeah, away. I was really uh, I, I was really burning my ego then, because right. even during that first class, I, I still can remember I was doing a, a pose, a twisting triangle, Pata Trikanasan. and there, the class is full of the top Bay Area Iyengar teachers, right? They are all these sophisticated teachers, and in the course of doing the pose, the teacher said, "Stop, everybody come look at this guy." And they all came around, and I'd never been in a class where they everybody came around like fifty teachers.
0: You're just like, and I'm in
1: the pose, and I'm like trying so hard, and my ego's like, I I have to really perform this with all my will, and I'm literally vibrating in the pose. And she just goes and proceeds to point out all the misalignments, showing that obviously I didn't know what I was doing, and that how out of alignment I was. And people literally were snickering. There, you can hear them going. And I just, I could feel my, the blood, just like the embarrassment, the levels of like, I could just imagine I was going through pink, orange, red, blue, purple, red, the waves of just color. And I just, I've never been like, I'm stuck in a super hard pose. I've got 50 strangers snickering at me. It was quite, it was not what you would say a very uplifting ego experience. That still
0: happens to me in every class you go to. Perfect.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we, no, but it was that, you know, in retrospect too, um, from that, even though I got heavily into the anger system for ten years, mm. after that, it, it was also something that I have come to grips that I don't really ever want to propagate that kind of view and that kind of uh, teaching.
0: What being sort of critical and
1: hyper. Well, yeah. you know, and, I, and in in res- mm-hmm. retrospect, I don't believe that the lady had any ill intent. Sure, you know, it was just the style of like what to look for, and she wanted to point out that. You know, I didn't really know, and that um, it wasn't very good in her estimation. Example
0: of all those things that weren't to be done.
1: Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, I was the perfect example. I had. I was like, it was almost like uh, there. There's thirty major misalignments, and this guy is doing all of them. It's like we haven't really seen this type of catastrophe really ever, you know. So I was very. It was, but. Yeah, you know, I just I, and and now I don't I don't really want to do that right. to somebody right. to point it all out like that.
0: Right. So you, um, so at a certain point, so you practiced Diane Garden probably taught it for ten years. Yeah, I was Very really seriously? turned on.
1: I was really turned yeah. on. Even yeah. although it was, you know, there were those moments of humiliation, it. But it really expanded my mind. That look, I I I felt like I was a pretty serious student of the practice and. There was a whole other world that I didn't know, and that there was a whole level of depth that I really needed to learn about, which was the, the alignment, you know, the anatomical alignment, the, the refinement of awareness on, uh, within the body, details of how to do the poses. I didn't know, and I really got into it. So I really went in full blast of the Angar Method and gained a lot from it, gained a lot from the experience.
0: And people in Boulder have something of a reputation of being very alternative and spiritual and active and this and that. But in my experience, most of my friends, um, you know, maybe practice yoga once in a little while um, sort of as a form of exercise. So sort of what, from when you were young, I mean, obviously, you're a very unique story, but what was your real connection or excitement to... Was it just exercise or was there some...
1: Oh, I mean, right from the beginning, it was totally this the highest spiritual longing. You know, I really wanted, the reason I asked my mom to read me the books and why she started me on the yoga subject at all was my inquiries when I was even just four years old about what is this life about? Why are we here? What is death? Why are we we created? And then why is it all taken away? I mean, the most existential profound Mm -hmm. questions I was into and I wanted to know, and I wanted to l- know life, and I wanted to get to the essence, and that was that was my fire, my passion, and about um, love for this, the universe or whatever God, you know, what is this? And that's what I was really into. So it was just totally a spiritual practice. It wasn't. That's why, like, I didn't after, gosh, uh, almost fifteen years, I didn't, I didn't even know or have knowledge about how to formally do the poses that well. I just sort of got myself into a general form based on the picture. Mm -hmm. Hold your foot, bend this way, now breathe. But I was more into the feeling and the the discovery with my awareness of deep inside myself that trying to contact and tap that spirit. That's That's what I was into. But then it got with the outer alignment emphasis. It became much more. It became much more outer body, physically oriented. Did you find that you kind of
0: swung toward just getting it precise physically, and oh, then totally. you then you sort of remembered and got back into
1: the whole? Yeah, body yeah, body yeah. Because you know, uh, <clears throat> th- it was so, so alluring to know, like, if I press my big toe like this and I rotated just precisely the skin of my outer hip. You know, just to have that kind of nuance of control, right. and how it would create other openings in my body. It was so there was a control, a power to that. And then I was also at the same time, simultaneously with the, the Iyengar method, I was studying Ashtanga Vinyasa, Patabi Joyce's system, and that was so physical, and it was in a large part, you know, because it was really moving powerfully with the breath and bandhas and. Connecting the poses and they were difficult poses they weren't like easy they are very challenging and the sequence and I remember trying to do it the first time and thinking I only got through a little part of it without just collapsing on the mat thinking I'm out of shape you know all those things so I really practiced and was able to then do the series strong and then I met um, Patabi Joyce in 88 and studied with him for a month and a small group of us in Southern California and I learned first and second series, and and that same year I met Richard Freeman, oh, yeah. and all the way on the other side in Boston, oh, yeah. and the pose that you have on the cover of the latest issue of Elephant was, the pose that he and I laugh about because it was he was like, on a wall like a brick wall uh, at the Harvard University, he was just hanging out, you know, in a way it uh, maybe wasn't doing full yogi dandasana but. Yeah. But it was like that, and I just thought, this guy was so intriguing-looking. Yeah. So I came up and started speaking to him, and we became friends. I can totally see him doing that. You know, and, I, and I just thought, yeah, conference. you know, just in it, right. And yeah. well, it, was at a, it was for a conference, and, and interestingly, it was an Iyengar conference. Hmm. So he was attending an Iyengar yoga conference. I had just flown from Batavi Joyce all the way across the country from Santa Barbara to Boston to attend this conference. That's where I met Richard. And he and I became friends and we started practicing privately just doing the Ashtanga Vinyasa series. And he said, Why don't you come to Boulder and uh hang out with me? So I would come here and we would hang out, and then he said, do You want to teach a teach a workshop? So I would what do,
0: you, what do your John Friend and Richard Freeman do when you hang out?
1: Well, um, it's very interesting. We've had some really we've had some great things. I mean, Richard is You know, he's just uh, brilliant on so many levels. So we would, he he likes astronomy, so at night we would pull out a telescope or binoculars and look at the stars and the planets and the moon, and we would um, go outside into the mountains and uh, look at plants, and we would talk about anatomy and pull out books and uh, pull out, get clay models of the pelvic floor and spend time until midnight in the kitchen talking about... Where really is the center for Mulabanda, you know? Like, dude, this is, is it. I mean, yeah. so we would penetrate and, and pull out scripture and yeah. discuss deep philosophical what I concepts figured. about comparison, comparative yeah. philosophy, and religion.
0: So, Anasara, which I haven't really practiced particularly, I've studied with, um, as I said, Jeannie Manchester uh, for years. She's obviously hugely influenced by Richard. I studied over at yeah. um, the Yoga Workshop. But um, so I've got a feel for it. But and I took, as I said last night, I uh, got into full lotus, one of the first and the first and one of the only times with you in the class I took at uh, the Yoga Journal conference. And in between, I've been in a bunch of them. And in between one of them, I remember a bunch of your teachers kind of doing these crazy moves, and you all just hanging out and having a great time. Right. I feel like Anasara, which means flowing with grace, and we touched on that last night. In a very interesting way, um, when everything was chaotic and kind of going wrong, and I was like, "Well, that's not flowing with grace." And you were like, "Actually, that is." Yeah. Maybe could you say something about anasara and what it means to flow with grace, and how that is different from or rose out of your studying with Iyengar?
1: Yeah, great. Um, flowing with nature. Uh-huh. So you even hear the word "sara" like in "samsara," uh-huh. you know, and "sara" meaning like this flow. And Anu in this way could mean like the soul or an individual aspect of consciousness. So you're just flowing that the small part of ourself or our individuality flowing with something bigger, aligning with something bigger. So the question is, what happens when we align with nature? And what I think in a nutshell is, you do get this opening, a revelation, some, even a glimmer of. Consciousness, you get a deeper knowledge, an insight into the very essence of that nature itself, of of oneself, of what this life is. So you get expanded awareness of the order, the interconnectedness of things. You get a, a true experience of what I think is like delight, you know, where there is that wonder. We spoke about the musicians or the magic of life like you think oh, the photography sessions really gone off but maybe it it actually opened up something else that other level of freedom occurs, a freedom of experience, a freedom of heart so more delight is experienced when you align with nature so anusara is is a method, a path, a practice of getting more attuned in your heart with yourself and everything around you and everyone else around you to make life fuller, mm-hmm. to make life deeper, to make life more expanded.
0: And how is that? Um, because that's what everyone wants. Everyone. Everyone. I and mean, how is this not self-help? How is it like a real gen- I don't even know what I mean. But how? Like how do people uh, contact that in you know, a in a genuine way, where it's not Tony Robbins on late night you know TV after the steak knives, you know. <laughs> um.
1: Yeah, I think let's see if I think I know what you mean. Um,
0: where it's not where you, that heart is real and that joy is real, yeah. and it's not some sort of scary. Yeah, yeah. I think thing.
1: I mean that's I think one of the one of the things I think it's a good question because it's not just like maybe you're talking about new agey kind of concepts that somebody might recognize the truth in at some level, but they can't apply it. Maybe I don't know.
0: I guess what I'm talking about is what I talk about in every interview okay. I've done, which is spiritual materialism, <laughs> okay. which if you had talked yes. about, we, we had talked about Trump Brimshay, which is right. a at the Boulder Shambhala Center. Spiritual materialism is that concept where our ego itself wants to be happy, and that's the whole point of the ego. We're trying to protect our world and ourselves and be happy. And um, spiritual materialism is when the ego says, ah, I can study Anusara, do this yoga stuff, and then finally I'll have expanded awareness, I'll be happy, I'll be joyful, people love me. I mean, you are obviously a very happy person. People do love you. Um, I mean, I was reading about the friend heads and all these people. I mean, I don't know of any community. I can't, no, I don't know of any yoga community for sure where there's such a sense of joy or kind of um, community and that's a real accomplishment. Yeah. Um, And how do do, do you actually do
1: that? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, see, you know, it's such a fine line, this whole thing about feeding the ego yeah. and dissolving the ego and not really honoring one's individuality so it's kind of like where's the source of the original desire for happiness anyway yeah. so one you know i might i really think that why do all people want to be free why do all want all people want to be happy and that's it's a transcendental Feeling and longing than just the individual desires. I'm talking about a deep soul desire, and it gets filtered. You know, the ego doesn't want to. The thing. This is like the. It's a huge subject because it's it's um it's a fuzzy line Mm. between when when one gets a level of fulfillment or a level of just gratification. Like you'd say, like, what if I gain more spiritual power and more people like me? Yeah. And in one level, everybody wants that to a certain extent. You then, you know, the ego says, "Look, I'm I've got a lot of friends, or that makes me feel good." But is it really satisfying the deepest spiritual fulfillment of feeling like you really belong in life? That there's really a true a love, a a very high love, not just. a romantic or a superficial personal love. So it's a it's a tricky question. Um,
0: well, there's this quote by Suzuki Roshi that you know who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And said, "Wisdom is seeking. It is wisdom that is seeking wisdom." You know, that's sort of what you're saying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what Wanting I do? To, yeah. Be a spiritual. I guess
1: one way that that maybe differentiates is that <clears throat> at least by lip service we do. You know that I I do try to start from the bigger universal perspective to talk about freedom that isn't just a... well, I'll back that up. See, I think we have to actually start with the ego. We have yeah. to almost start with the personal. But think about it. like let's say somebody you got a you have a back pain. I mean that's personal. Yeah. You had a breakup with your girlfriend, that's personal. Yeah. You're you're struggling financially with the magazine. That's personal. Yeah. And you but you want freedom. So, at one level, it's the personal... He's just
0: putting hypotheticals there. Things
1: are... (laughs) 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 That's true. No, I don't know at all. I I (laughs) I imagine that in every regard, (laughs) it's just the opposite. I have plenty of (laughs) issues for it. It's universal for everybody. I should speak for myself. Well,
0: an issue I do have, which was just to bring it in a personal way that's accessible to everybody, is um, um, like last night, I was... Doing this big introduction, I'm yeah. in front of a couple thousand people, or I don't know how many are there, fifteen hundred. We'll pump up the numbers. Um, and you know, you're nervous and you're excited, and it's cool, and everyone yeah. sees you. And if you're funny, then everyone likes you. Yeah. Whatever. So it's this big sort of ego moment, but really none of it is about you. You're supposed to be talking. It was an interesting experience. I thought I was introducing Ty. So I had really read up on Thai, I already knew Thai, yeah. I was pretty relaxed about it. And then I went there and Thai was like, no, you're talking about elephant. And I found it very challenging, in, which, you know, people may not believe, but I found it very challenging for my Buddhist background to go up in front of a million people and talk about myself and my magazine. I was like, I don't know, that's really obnoxious.
1: You and know what, I think I got it. here. Okay. okay, so, see, this is, see, for me, in my view, the ego yeah. is God-given. Uh-huh. So it's not like our we're individual. It's not a problem. It's not it's not necessarily a problem. But here's the where the problem comes in. Here's where spiritual materialism comes in. When one forgets that they're part of something bigger. When the when the individual forgets that you know that we're part of something so grand and supreme. You you have to put your magazine in... think about the original intention while you're doing it. If you're thinking I'm doing it to make personal money is my highest priority, right. I think it's a problem. Right. If you it's think also not a smart career choice. N- yeah, well, rough, career maybe maybe, career. but it's possible. Like yeah. some magazines today, right. yoga magazines actually make millions. Right. Okay, Yoga Journal they make a lot of money, but or whatever. But um, but let's say this is that you're. I just um, I. I'm assuming from because I've seen your magazine from day one. Yeah, that you did it out of total passion to put out these truths, to put out beauty, to uplift people. You, that's a higher endeavor. That's that's beyond your small. That's the small you. However, you individually are are not just like not are putting yourself um, diminishing yourself. That you're becoming homogeneous to the point when no one recognizes that you're your magazine is different you want to have a unique statement a brand on your magazine so my point is is that that individuality the ego aspect i have no i think it's god given it's only a problem when that when the ego feels separated and forgets that it's really serving something bigger so my thing from the beginning every class every teaching every practice we just try to remember that we're we're part of We're together. Even though we're different, we might have different cultures, religions, families, ages, everything. We're all one spirit. We truly are one consciousness. We're one, you know, and that we're not trying, I'm not trying to dissolve the ego to everybody get completely homogeneous and the same. I want to actually enhance diversity, enhance differences, and honor that. With, and do it in a way that can glorify the unified, common denominator of all beings. And that way, you've, you, d- you deepen your heart connection. You deepen all the aspects that Buddha taught, you know, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, upeka. you know, all the, these things. That, that's totally about love, man. And it's just totally, that you, how do you feel that about somebody else? Is because you expand your consciousness to feel how we connect. But you don't have to lose yourself in that way. You don't have to like put yourself down. If, I, if I'm a good person, then I'm going to honor all my teachers, my parents, my community, this world, the, that it's one big spirit coming through me in this few, few days, few years on the, on the planet, and that way I'm glorifying the highest. So it's a great thing. See, I just think that you really hit on the subject that is the key. Like, how do we use our individuality that glorifies uh, a, something universal? Right. Is that fantastic?
0: Yeah. Well, it's sort of a contradictory... It's like the United States of America. You have different states, and they're yeah. all unified in one. Yeah, and
1: every city, every... Boulder right. is, is, like, unique almost than any other city in the United States. Mm. And you don't want to get... You want to keep Boulder different. Right. Why would you want to have Boulder like something else? And, and the Boulder people, you guys really actually... Set more boundary to actually maintain your freedom. Right. You know, and your civic laws and things like that, your, your ordinances are among the tightest in the United States. Right.
0: Supporting local businesses and keeping yeah. business and building. Shorter. I was
1: just showing Melanie, we went to Boulder Bookstore, you know, the, and the local proprietors here. Yeah. And the lo- like you, the magazines, all these things are just that is individuality that's rising at the highest level of refinement in so many ways. But you're also, every, the reason they're all successful, I think, is that they, they tap into something that supports and glorifies the bigger connection. If you do it and you're trying to disconnect from others, then I think the ego's got a problem. You're if, trying to
0: be a rock star
1: on your own right. By yourself, and yeah. that you forget and you put other people down. Like if you get up there right. it's, it's yesterday and you start to speak... You know, one, of the, one reason I think we all connected is that you're, you're a genuine person. You just, you don't really, in one way, you care what people think, mm-hmm. but you're just, you're going to play the edge with it. Mm-hmm. And that's the, and yeah, you're really good at that. And you were afraid if you, uh, just kidding. <laughs> but if you, you know, you're afraid that by promoting your own individual magazine, that it's highlighting you individually, maybe. So it's like, elephant, I don't want to talk about elephant. I want to yeah. talk about somebody, let's talk about yeah. Ty.
0: Yeah, it felt weird to like go up in front of a million people and be like, "So, let's talk about." You know, but you me. could,
1: you know, but you can switch and say, right.
0: "Elephant, the mission, is, the mission is this
1: is to serve, and that's how we connect. Yeah. That's how I connect with yeah. Ty, because right. Ty is like one of the most selfless yeah. persons I know. Yeah. What he did to make that whole concert yeah. happen, and and he didn't even go up. He didn't even. No, he's not that way. That's right. why we love him, and that's right. why it works. That's what all those Zakir is saying is the top drummer in the world. Really? How humble is that guy in so many ways? Right. That's amazing. And that, but he's totally. If you watch him, he's super. You you know, individual. He doesn't. He will be really strong with the sound guy, the lighting guy, even his fellow musicians. He's uncompromising. It's not like everything's okay. Like hey, it's all free love, man. No, he's there's an individual intensity. Yeah. And but it's because he's dedicated to God. He's dedicated the highest level of music and art, and that's what he's. Therefore, that's his whole mission. So it, it's the, first, the key is keep putting it. I just put it in the universal sense first and use the individual sense to support the universal. So I don't say, hey, the, the ego needs to be completely dissolved. The individual needs to be eradicated. Right. You know, Ego's a problem. I don't think that essentially ego's a problem. Right. I think that it it, it definitely is very easy. It's is, is one of the most challenging things that we deal with in our spiritual practice. But it's a double edged sword because it's the one thing that can actually bring the most glorification to the universal. It can be bring the most, you know, just absolute reflect the highest on the whole. The parts are what make the beauty. Every little part of the brush stroke on the calligraphy. You don't look necessarily look at each individual stroke. You read the, you read it by the whole form so you have to back your eye off and look at the whole thing and then you look at you can read it yeah. the parts each each part of it and you know in Chinese calligraphy Japanese calligraphy you just there's basic form and then you add so you can and that's how you you start to make you increase meaning but you have to just back off and see the whole thing at once then you can go into the parts
0: so Maybe one final question for for those, um, I guess for anyone, people who are very experienced with anusara or another style of yoga or people who are just practice a little bit or people don't really give a shit about yoga, um, you know, and find their fun going to bars or doing whatever. Um, every, all of us universally, you know, want to be happy and a lot of us experience yeah. depression and anger and these things. and I guess, what, what would your advice be on a sort of simple level? I mean, that depression and anger, is that sort of ego separating, you know?
1: Not necessarily. Uh-huh. So it's just, to me, it's just energy. Uh-huh. It's just uh, that energy of the depression, the anger is arising from the same place that the love and the joy is coming from. It's how we use it. So the witness, that individual witness that is watching the whole and feeling the play of those energies, moving through the person they make choices on how to respond and how to offer that energy mm-hmm. you know there might be a time when um, you use the ang- you know like Tibet right so you guys are connected to Tibet yeah. uh, do you just sit back and say like China this is going to uh, destroy every cultural and kill all these people or do you have any fire right. does it stoke any fire within you right. that, that says that that's not right that's not dharmic yeah so how do you respond? And you can do it in a variety of ways. It doesn't. So it's. It's my thing is what's life enhancing. So anger is God given. Depression is God given. And most of the time, people are depressed. They feel like they lost something that they so valued. It, it could have been a loved one, and and without that love, they would never be depressed. So they can use the depression. They can switch it and 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 offer it in ways that can actually let let the energy be utilized that can enhance life. Now, it's a double-edged sword because the depression can, can take them to a place where they totally separate. They don't feel connected to the whole. They actually have less heart. They can be completely like it's right. taking them down. But it doesn't necessarily... That's the point. Depression is not necessarily like uh, a thing that takes you away from life. And anger doesn't necessarily always take you away from that. Right. It's how you use it. And there are levels of it, too. So uh, So when you
0: experience them, you should like really... Try and work with them and pause pause and feel it. what it is
1: right and and use it to in the highest use it to we what we do is in, you know am sorry what I do is try to use these feelings that arise the whole spectrum of my emotion to affirm life that life is good that you know there is an interconnectedness to life and that we're we're connected and maybe I can use that to deepen our connection maybe, maybe I can use that that feeling to actually bring more happiness, to bring more sense of wholeness, more sense of really love in that way. So that's, you know, bottom line is, use everything to your advantage. And that's a very, that's the thing with the Buddhist Tantra, the Hindu Tantra. It's not that, you know, it's like, not to say that uh, uh, ego, emotions, the individual aspects of our mind and nature are essentially a problem. They're just to we. I look at them as they're essentially good, but you have to use skillful means on applying them in ways that can give you a deeper insight into the nature of life and yourself, and use them in ways that that can bring more love and joy, and delight, and you know that's what you're doing with your magazine. I feel like I think you're doing you know great. And I'm, I wish you the best on your national. Okay. Yeah, I'll be yeah. very a great supporter of that.
0: Well thank you so much.
1: That's thank brilliant. you.
0: Abby, do you have anything? You have a question? Do you either of you? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was great.
1: Thanks. <laughs>